We're going to be talking today about contentment. We are continuing our series um, that's been a year-long series almost about fighting the good fight. And today we want to talk about contentment. There's a passage of scripture, um, and today we're, we're, we're trying to make something that is almost hidden. Now, it's hidden because the enemy really doesn't want us to understand the negative side of it. Uh, the, the idea of covetousness, which is the opposite of contentment. See, the opposite of contentment is not, not having something. Because you can be content, I can be content whether we have a lot or whether we have little. The enemy of contentment is covetousness, is not being satisfied with what we have. Um, I, I, I think I want to focus on a verse out of Hebrews chapter 13. Now we're going to read about uh, eight or 10 verses today, depending on how much time we have. And you don't, you don't have to turn and run them down. They should all be on your outline. But this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. See, um, um, the opposite, the, the opposite of contentment and covetousness, covetousness always focuses on what you don't have. Even if you have an abundance, it's never enough. Somebody asked John D. Rockefeller one time, uh, who was one of the richest men in the world at the time, it was back in the 1800s, and they said, uh, John, how much is enough? And the richest man in the world said, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. That's the nature of covetousness. He says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what's the advantage of being content? Knowing the Lord is with you. And it also opens the door for something tremendously powerful. When I understand the principle of commitment, I'm also able to say, according to Hebrews, the Lord is my helper. Now you'd think when things are piling on in a good way, that's when we would say the Lord is my helper. But when we understand the Lord is our helper, it's because we've understand, we understand that whether we're in lack or whether we're in abundance, whether we're in the black or in the red, the Lord is our helper if we can learn the secret of contentment. Now, contentment's not easy to understand. Many of you will remember uh, or at least have read about it uh, through Gates of Splendor. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot and her husband Jim went to South America to do missions work, um, as I said, in the mid-50s. And her husband, Jim, along with several other missionaries, were killed uh, trying to reach a very remote, um, uh, primitive tribe that had never heard the gospel. They were living without any kind of modern conveniences. It was really like going back in time. And Jim was killed. The missionary Jim was killed. He's the one that said, a man is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And that was a, in a moment of premonition about his death. And uh, it's a story that became famous around the Christian world. 
and opened the door for the gospel to that tribe that killed Jim Elliott. Years later, uh, I think it was back in the 90s. I, I, yeah, it was in the 90s. So it was decades later, the man responsible for the death of Jim Elliott from that primitive tribe was brought to America to see the missionary agency and to see what was behind Jim Elliott going to give his life that this man might know the Lord. And, and he did become a Christian, by the way. He was brought to America and never seen anything like it. And he said in an interview, speaking through an interpreter, that he loved Americans. And they said, what do you love about Americans? He says, their generosity. And not knowing what he was talking about, they thought maybe talking about Jim giving his life. He said, well, he said, Americans never hunt for food. We have to hunt for food every day. We drive our wagon, which is his word for a car. He said, in America, you just drive up to someone's barn and someone's leaning out the window, always waiting for you. And all you have to do is tell them what you want. And, and they go and bring it out to you and they won't take any money. The only thing they'll let you give is a little card. And you give them a card and you think, well, maybe this is their money. He says, but it's not their money. They give the card right back to you <laughs> and tell you thank you. And we, we kind of laugh, you know, and we say, well, you know, he's from a primitive place. He doesn't understand the technology and the economy of the West. And we kind of laughed at him. And he, he was good natured about it. It, it was explained to him how you know, what was going on. And we laugh, but you know, I think sometimes that we Christians can be just as ignorant of an economic system as this brother was of our system. I think that we take simplistic definitions and I'm not trying to be complicated today, but I want to introduce you to one of the most powerful things you will ever discover and it is the secret of contentment because the Bible says this, if we ever latch on to commitment, it will produce happiness and satisfaction in us. But not only that, it opens a supernatural power to us. Let me give you the definition of commitment or, or contentment. See, we preachers, I did it again all this morning, first service, I kept saying commitment because we preach about commitment so much, I keep saying that instead of contentment. But let me give you the definition of contentment. Contentment is the state of being happy and satisfied. Happy and satisfied. Now you can be satisfied without being happy. You know, Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh was satisfied, I mean, but he was never happy, you know. Um, you can be uh, uh, happy, but not content. And we need to understand that contentment is the blending of happiness and satisfaction. It can apply on several levels, economic, you know, money, relationally, because when we're taught to be content, the 10th commandment, where it says don't covet, if you state that positively, what the Lord was saying was be content, be content. And he said, don't, don't covet your neighbor's wife, relation. Don't cover your, covet your neighbor's donkey, possession. Don't covet 
their money or anything that they have. So contentment reaches to all kinds of, of things in life, just as covetousness can reach. Now let's talk for a minute about contentment and happiness. Happiness refers to a state of being happy. That's not too hard, is it? Of being happy, exhilarated, or feeling pleasure. That's happiness. On the other hand, contentment refers primarily to a state of being satisfied. Okay, the main difference between happiness and contentment is that while happiness denotes an emotional state, which is usually transitory, in other words, it comes and goes, contentment refers to a state of being which is generally more long-term. Contentment isn't necessarily an excited kind of happy, though it can be, um, though that emotion can be experienced. But contentment is better understood as a peaceful ease of mind. It is being satisfied with what you have, or you might say who you have, or you might say where you are, wherever whatever, and whoever that might be. Now, um, let's do just a little bit more background. And then I want to, I'm not going to do an exegesis or an exposition of these eight or 10 verses. I just want to read them. And I want you to see how contentment is hidden in plain sight. We, we, we often miss it. I want to tell you two things. Contentment is all over scripture it's at the foundation of our joy, but it's almost hidden in plain sight. We almost, we almost read over it and think it's just a little add-on. We think it's an adjective instead of a noun. Likewise, covetousness hides in plain sight as well. We'll talk about that as we work through. Please understand that we're going to be reading almost all of these verses, not all of them, but almost all of them are the words of Paul. And Paul is a man that says, I have learned. Now that means he wasn't born content. It means it wasn't his natural existence or his natural form. But he says, I have learned that no matter what state I'm in, I can always have contentment. He did not say I will always have happiness. He didn't say that I will always be on top of the the pile. He, he was saying some days my theme song is nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And then there'll be other days when he's, his theme song is I've got the devil by the tail on a downhill drag singing tie-yippee-yay. <laughs> but most days are going to be somewhere in between. A lot of days will be a medley of the two. But Paul, the hints of scripture, when he gives us a little bit about his biography in um, Philippians chapter three, we read a little bit about the introduction to him. He was on a fast track to success. He was a fairly young man. Some scholars and some rabbis say that he was a, a member of the Sanhedrin. He probably wasn't, but he was the, the uh, chief um, agent for the Sanhedrin. As far as we know, he was not married and you would have to be married to be a part of the Sanhedrin. So there's some things we just don't know, but he was a young man on a high up position in the Sanhedrin. We know that he was born in a 
Gentile city with a strong Jewish community. He had Roman citizenship that kept him alive in several situations. He, he had rights and, and privileges that not everybody had. We know that he was sent to Jerusalem from Tarsus to study at the feet of Gamaliel. It would be the equivalent of us sending our child to an exclusive preparatory school. This man was in the upper crust of society. That's why it's a little odd for us to, to read about him being so comfortable with being destitute. But it was something he had to learn. We know in Philippians 3 that Paul's goal in life was to know God's goal for him. Now I want to say this, contentment is an absolute treasure that needs to be a life search for every child of God. As we move into the days of head, uh, ahead, I believe we're going to find that contentment, true contentment, is going to be especially valuable in the roller coaster days that we're in and that we're continuing to move through. Now, the Bible says this, if you can get a hold of godly living and contentment, that is the way to blessing. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Do you realize what can happen if a man or woman or a family or a church says, we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to live for Jesus? We're going to serve Jesus and we're going to serve him in good days and bad days. We're going to serve him when we're on top. We're going to serve him when we're below. See, some churches say uh, that, you know, they embrace a prosperity gospel that says Jesus did everything he did so you can have more. But that's not what Paul taught. Paul never even alluded to something like that. Now, he never said that there's, you know, God died so that we could be poor. But what you read in the New Testament is that two things are for real. There are times of blessing and there are times of lack. There are times of prosperity. There are times of, of, of depravity. But he said in all of these times, God has promised to give us contentment and he's promised to give us sufficiency. And if we can just begin to learn that, we've got a winning combination. In Philippians 4, let's work through some of these verses. In Philippians 4, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have re uh, revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity to act. In other words, Paul is trying to be as, as, as generous and as um, beautiful as he can by saying, I am so thankful that you have sent an offering. You hadn't done it in a long time, but I understand you didn't have opportunity to, but thank you for your giving. And then he wants to be sure that they don't misunderstand what he's saying. He says in verse 11, not that I speak from need. He said, I'm not poor mouthing. I'm not telling you thanks for, the, for your gift and I would have gone under without it. I'm not telling you, you should have been giving all along. He said, because I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He said, I know how to get along with little. I also know how to live in prosperity. He said, I know what it's like to sleep on a pile of hay that's dung infested and lice in, 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 uh, infested and flea infested. He said, I know how to do that. I'm not going to complain, tell God he owes me better. 
He said, I also know to go, how to go to a five-star resort hotel. And I'm not so overwhelmed by it that I steal all the paper uh, products and all the toilet tissue out of the room. He said, he said, it doesn't turn my head. He said, I know how to live in every circumstance. No, there's nothing wrong with taking toilet paper. You paid for it. I'm just trying to make a point. He said, I have learned the secret. See, we, we buy uh, uh, downloads of people saying, I've learned how to make this much money. I've learned how to never be in need. But Paul says, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. He said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, he did go on and say, nevertheless, you've done well to share with me. Thank you for your offering in my difficulty. But he said, while I commend you for your giving and I thank you for it with all sincerity, he said, I do want you to know just in an opportunity of teaching here that there is a grace, there's an anointing, there's an empowering that when people can't give or when people do give, God says, I can give you a sense of contentment. I, I, I mean, this, this person's with the Lord. I'd, I'd never say it if they weren't, be afraid they would hear me say this. But when Ramona and I were struggling, we were struggling um, to pastor a little church and to survive. We were just, just getting started in the ministry together. The church was in a tough spot. Um, I, I, I'm not saying this to complain. I'm, I'm just telling you how desperate the situation was. Uh, every month we decided which uh, utility at the church we could let be turned off for a few days because we just couldn't pay all the utilities. We always had to, you know, had to have power for Sunday. Um, I, I, I gave myself, church didn't do it. They, they loved us too much to do this, but I gave myself seven pay cuts thinking that would help over the course of a while. And we invited a guest and we were so honored to have them. And my wife had prepared such a beautiful room, guest room in our home for them. And, and um, we brought them in. And basically what he said was, look, I've, I've done my time. I deserve better than a spare bedroom in a pastor's house. And no offense to you, but my days of staying in someone's spare bedroom are over. So I said, well, I, you know, I understand, you know, that's fine. So I went out and put on, put on my credit card, my, my card, not a church's card, card didn't, church didn't have one. And we paid for that week of experience with this guest speaker. And when it was over, you know, all week long, he talked about, you know, I, I, I have such a tough time and to please give to my ministry. And I thought this is maybe, I'm not sure it's number one, but it's at least the top three mistakes I've ever made in my life. And he will never come back to this church. And he never did. And I never, I never told him what I felt. That's between him and God. But, you know, I, I, I tell you what I... And I only say that to illustrate this. I only say that to illustrate this. Paul said, I've learned to sleep in the pastor's kid's bed. And I've learned how to stay maybe at a Motel 6. And I've learned how to stay at the Omni Resort. And I'm content any place 
that I go. I remember staying with a pastor one time when I was trying to get my, my feet wet. And he said, you're going you're gonna to have to stay in our child's room. I said, oh, I, that is fine. I am so honored to do that. Thank you for letting me be in your home. And he said, this is a child's bed. And I'm, I'm not a tall guy. But there was a, probably about 12 to 15 inches of me hanging off the bed, you know. <laughs> And uh, the first night I was there, four-year-old boy comes in, shakes me and says, move over. <laughs> and I, I said, well, and you know, I mean, I didn't know this child. I, I wasn't above sharing a bed, but, but this is somebody's child. And I said, well, you go, will you go ask your mom and daddy, you know, if, if it's okay and the daddy came in and fussed at him and he said, this is our guest. You don't come in here. And the little boy, you know, it just, he looked like he was going to be a, you know, a, a wrestler. And uh, he said, ain't nobody taking my bed without asking me. And uh, the daddy whopped him and said, well, you just learned a new experience because it just happened. And I, I laughed myself back to sleep. And we became big buddies. We became big buddies. But, but I, he wanted me to know I was in his territory. Well, you know what? Paul said, hey, I can share a bed with a four-year-old. I can sleep on a bed that's not big enough for me. And I also know how to come into the house of Priscilla and Aquila and be treated like a king. And he said, and, but see, he, it wasn't like, yeah, sometimes I'm treated well, sometimes I'm treated bad. He was saying, I have learned that I am content in every one of those situations. Um, I know how to get along with little. I know how to live in prosperity in every circumstance. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need, and I can do all things. Now, you may say, well, I'm not like that, Pastor. I, 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 I do want more. And, and if I could just get a little bit more, if I could just get a, a little more pay, if I could just get a better house, if I could just get a better car, I would be happy. Well, you need to ask yourself that question. Would that really make you happy? Now, now don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house. Nothing wrong with saving up and graduating from this house to that house to that house. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with buying a nicer car. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all as long as it doesn't control you. Jesus would say a man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of things which he possesses. And I tell you what Ecclesiastes said, one who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor one who loves abundance with its income. The writer of Hebrews says this, this futility, this, he, the book of Ecclesiastes is about traps that he fell into being a rich man. He said, I have found out that wine, women, money, houses, lands, all of these things have their place, but they are not the end of what we're after. And I, I, need, to, I need to say it better than wine, women. Uh, sexuality is what he was talking about. It's not just women. He says uh, in Matthew 6, Jesus said, don't worry, saying, what are we to eat? What are we to drink? What are we to wear for clothing? 
He says, the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And by Gentiles, he wasn't making a racial statement. He was saying the unbelievers, those out of covenant, they seek for all of these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be provided for you. Um, This version says, do not worry then. King James says, do not take thought. Now, a lot of people that are lazy and want somebody else to take care of them, they said, well, Jesus said, don't even think about it. That's not what Jesus said. In 1611, when you were told to take no thought, it was our way of saying, don't worry about that. Don't get into anxiety over that. We have from secular literature, we know that people were often diagnosed as dying from taking thought. And what that sounds like is they thought about something and it killed them. No, it was anxiety. And Jesus wasn't saying, don't think about it. Jesus wasn't saying, don't have plans. I've known men that wouldn't provide life insurance uh, because they said that's not trusting God. And then they ended up dying early and the wife and family were destitute. I know people that, of course, the laws have gotten where you just about can't do it now. I'm not going to buy car insurance. I can give that money to missions, praise God. Yeah, and then you hit somebody and they go to the hospital and you have to declare bankruptcy. And No, 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 no. It's not don't think about things. It's not don't take precautions. It's don't let anxiety fill up your life. John gave this testimony in Luke 3. Now even tax collectors came to be baptized and they said to him, Teacher, What are we to do? And he said to the tax collectors, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And soldiers also were questioning him saying, what are we to do as well? And he said, don't extort money from anyone. Nobody had more bone crushing power over common people than Roman soldiers that patrolled all throughout the empire. You could not deny anything from a Roman soldier. And he said to them, do not extort money, do not harass anyone. One of the most frustrating things of the world in the world is someone who has power that doesn't know how to wield that power. Uh, you know, um, you, you know, let me put it to you this way. Yes, there's the, you, we need this too. Um, in the Old Testament, it says there are seven things that the world crumbles under. The world can't bear up under. And one of them is a slave when he becomes a king. Now, what that meant was a a, a king was trained in how to rule with and and keep the allegiance of his people, how to rule and have the people continue to serve. But a person that didn't know how to rule that way would just be a heavy-handed dictator. And he says the whole world crumbles when somebody has the power, but not the grace to have authority. And John told the Roman soldiers, he says, he says, it's going to be easy for you to crush people, to harass people. But he says, don't do that. And then he tops it off with perhaps the most difficult thing of all, be content with your wages. Now, let me give one more disclaimer, and then we're going to shift gears and go a little bit faster. Um, Riches are not the opposite of of contentment. Covetousness is the opposite of contentment. Somebody wrote that Abraham Lincoln was going down the streets of, of Washington one day. Both of his sons, or two of his sons, 
were following behind him. Both of them were crying. Both of them had a cookie in their hand. They didn't know what the problem could be. And someone said, Mr. President, what's the problem? He said, it's the same problem as plagues the whole world. I've got two boys and three cookies and each of them wants the second one or the third one rather. He said, they both have one, but they want the one that they don't have. Now, um, let, 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 me, let me explain it to you this way. Riches, possessions are not evil. The Bible does not teach that we have to sell everything. They did that in the early days of Acts, but that wasn't a doctrinal move. That was a move of necessity. They had hundreds of thousands of people that did not have a home. They had hundreds of thousands of people that had gotten saved on the day of Pentecost and they weren't going back to their hometown. They were staying to learn about the faith. And it, no place does it say that the church required it of anyone. But the people said, if we're going to feed these people, if we're going to help these people, we're going to have to sell extra stuff in order to be able to house and feed them. And they did that, but it was never compulsory. The Bible does not teach redistribution of wealth. Uh, if, if a society decides they want to do that, that's up to the, the society, but it's not a mark of virtue to take from one group to give to another without due process. That's not the kind of thing that we're talking about. Jesus robe when it was stripped off of him and he was crucified naked, they would not tear his robe because it was such a fine robe. It was a robe without um, the, the seams. It would have been the equivalent of a high dollar suit in our society. In other words, Jesus, who certainly did not have riches, somebody gave him or somehow he said clothes are worth what you pay for them and he wore the top end clothing and maybe it was a gift. We don't know. But he, he, he would have said, well, you know, if, if he's like some people thought, we ought to sell this and give the money to the poor. Judas tried that. Judas said, why this waste? This, this stuff is poured out on your feet. We could have sold this and the money be given to the poor. But I think it was John that pointed out he didn't say that because he cared for the poor. He said that because he was a thief. Can I tell you this? There is a moment for extravagance. There's a moment to understand that a $100 shirt might serve me better than a $12 shirt. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But what is important, Jesus didn't make Joseph of Arimathea get rid of his riches. He didn't make Nicodemus get rid of his riches. When Jesus changed the water into wine, they didn't look at it and say, all right, Boone's Farm. The, the, and no, I've never had Boone's Farm. Never had, you know. But what I'm trying to say is that the man whose business was wine said, this is the best wine I have ever tasted. So please, loved ones, forgive my lengthy deliberation on this, but it would be a disaster for you to take this message and say, well, I've got to go get rid of all my stuff and sell it and and live a very austere life. Not unless God tells you to. In fact, you don't ever give away stuff at home without getting your wife's clearance. <laughs> and, and ladies, you don't, you don't give to Goodwill that tool that he bought and only used once because sometimes there is great power in just being the only one on the block to have that tool. 
Okay, I'm getting folks excited now. 1 Corinthians 7, we'll, we'll move on. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul was saying, some of you are slaves. He says, if you can get out of that condition of slavery, get out of it. If you can purchase your freedom or if there's any way that you can earn your freedom, do it. But if you can't, he says, know that the Lord's grace is sufficient for you in that position. If you're in an unfortunate marriage, he said in 1 Corinthians 7, if your husband wants to leave you, doesn't want to live with you, you're not under obligation to make him stay if he doesn't want to stay. But if he's pleased to live with you and let you be a Christian, then understand that you are a covering for him and God will work in his life because you are willing. See, it's, it's, it's about your attitude in almost all of life, in almost all of life. Now we read Philippians 4 already. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, he said, as to uh, the love of the brothers and sisters, you don't have any need to be written to. If you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you practice it toward all the brothers and sisters who are in Macedonia. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to excel even more. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life and attend to your own business, work with your hands just as we instructed you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. God does not say that righteous people give away everything and live in constant need. But this is what he was saying. He says, be sure that your possessions do not possess you. Be sure that whatever you have, God has blessed and you are managing well. Now, if we don't do that, if something has a hook on us, God may tell us to do something extreme. Remember the rich young ruler? God didn't demand this of any other wealthy. Do you know the women that followed Jesus? They, um, uh, you know, Mary Magdalene and the other Marys and, and Joanna and others. The scripture says that they, uh, at least some of them, were women of resource. Maybe they and their husbands were wealthy. And they contributed out of their riches to the ministry of the disciples. And, and thank God for those who have the gift of giving. Thank God for those that are able to contribute. It's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to have things. But he spoke to the rich young ruler and told him to sell everything. That's the only time that Jesus said to a person of wealth. I mean, he told us all to lay down our lives, all of that. That's for all of us. But the reason Jesus did that is not because wealth was evil. It was because wealth owned that man. Wealth owned that man. Okay. Um, 1 Timothy 6, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited, understands nothing, and has a sick craving for controversial questions on the internet. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, just controversial questions and disputes about words from which come envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of depraved mind, deprived of the truth. Now, he, he says these people are twisted. Everything they believe is wrong. And how does he summarize their error? He says, deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Send me a thousand dollars and I'll send you an anointed prayer handkerchief. Pledge $500 a month and I'll give you a vial of miracle water. 
Guys, this is trash, and I can't believe how gullible the people of God are. Now, don't get me wrong. God can bless water if he wants to. I've received some water that I think was blessed, but it wasn't a ministry gimmick. It was, well, it's a long story. I won't tell you the story. But I, it, that, that was a treasure to me. Um, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who suppose that godliness can help me make a buck. And again, Paul doesn't want Timothy to misunderstand. So this is what he says. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment. Do you know what Paul was saying to Timothy? He says, if you can get your hands clean and you can be free of covetousness, there is no telling what God can run through your hands if you live a godly life. You remember? Well, let's go. You remember. He says, we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, I believe God wants to make some people rich. I believe that with all of my heart. I think that God is in the business of making some people rich because they have the gift of giving and God knows he can trust them with riches. But when he says those who want to get rich, that's their goal, that's their motivation. I just want to get rich. He said they fall into all kinds of destruction for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many gifts. Hebrews, let love of brothers and sisters continue. Don't neglect hospitality. Some of you have entertained angels and not even known it. Remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them and those who are badly treated since you yourselves are also in the body. He says marriage is to be held in honor and the marriage bed is to be kept undefiled. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. And we say, yeah, get the whores and prostitutes. Get the thieves, get the manipulators. And do you know that there is one sin that Paul says, and make sure of this. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Yeah, don't, don't commit adultery. Don't mistreat people. That's right. Don't do any of that. But be sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, because he himself has said, I will never desert you. I will never abandon you. Why? What happens when we understand that we are content and he's always going to be with us. He says that opens the door where you can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Two verses and then we're going to begin to wrap it up. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not the pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? You lust and do not have, so you do whatever you have to do to get. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He says you need to realize that you don't have because you've not asked. 
And when you do ask, you don't receive. And it's because you ask with the wrong motives. You ask so that you may spend what you request on your own pleasures. Do you know what contentment means? It's described beautifully in Psalm 23. King James says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But in our vernacular, it's translated like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I will never be in need. I will never be in need. It, meaning, I, I'll, I'll never be destitute. Now, we, we, let, let's, let's begin, okay, we're sending, we're circling the airport now, we're about to land, okay? It's, uh, listen so we don't have any delays, okay, circling. We need to understand that there is the trap of discom, uh, discontentment. You know, when we were teaching our children, I forget if it was when uh, Brett and Sonia were children's pastors or when Pastor Frank was, I think it was way back with Sonia and Brett, we were teaching our kids the Ten Commandments and we used finger signs to teach them. And then I was teaching you in here so you could work with your children. And it was interesting, you know, first commandment was a one. There's one God and him only shall you serve and worship. There is only one God. Number two was the commandment for don't make any graven images. And we made these finger scissors. Don't, don't create something and call it God. There's only one God and don't make anything else into God. Number three was W, which stood for words. And the third commandment was uh, re, re, uh, to not take the name of the Lord in vain. So we taught them to remember their words and to watch their words and to be careful to know that words had impact. Number four, number four was a hard one because it was keeping the Sabbath day holy. And we, we thought, what can we do with this? And then we realized that uh, we gave them a picture of a car with four doors, with four wheels, with four people, a mom and dad and two kids on their way to church. On the Sabbath day. So we, we got past that one too. Number five was honor your parents. So we made it a salute, you know, honor and obey your parents. Number, number six, you know, was don't kill. Don't kill, you know, or, or actually don't murder. The Bible doesn't prohibit killing in certain situations, but it does prohibit the illicit and improper taking of life. We got to number seven, and we said that we're part of a group, but when a man and woman marry each other, they're part of the group, but they are a part of that group. They're just not a part of it. They are apart from it, and they have a relationship that they don't share with anyone else. Number eight was easy because in some old cultures, they would cut off the thumbs of thieves. So our kids were, thought, were taught, don't steal, you might lose your thumbs. <laughs> number you know, number nine, we did this way because it was, you know, don't bear false witness. And that means a lot more than just tell the truth. It means when you go to court, tell everything you ought to tell and hold nothing back. Let your word not condemn the innocent and let your word not exonerate the guilty. And, you know, you can hold back just one finger and it changes the equation. But when we got to number 10, thou shalt not covet, we just used 10 fingers grabbing. But we noticed something the kids did instinctively. And I've never said this before till today, but moms and dads in here, you did it too. When we said, don't covet, don't grab. The kids and moms and dads, you know what you did? <laughs> not everybody, but enough that I thought, whoa. <laughs> and, 
And I tell you what you did, you began to understand that the, the nature of covetousness was very deceitful and very hidden. And contentment is the remedy to covetousness because the 10th commandment says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet, covet your neighbor's donkey. You will not covet your neighbor's goods or money. You won't cover your neighbor's house, covet your neighbor's house or covet anything at all that your neighbor has. The 10th commandment says don't, don't wish you had what somebody else had because it puts something in your heart where you don't just do this. You... When I was developing that first series on the Ten Commandments a couple of decades ago, I was looking for good studies on the Tenth Commandment uh, about covetousness. And you know, and, and by the way, the the Tenth Commandment stated negatively is "Thou shalt not covet." Stated positively, it's "You shall be content." Okay, and. Um, I, I, I could find almost no sermons or even studies on covetousness. And I began to realize that covetousness is so well hidden in our lives that nobody preaches about it. I mean, almost nobody. It, there was a famine trying to find somebody teaching about covetousness. You know what Paul said? Bear, bear with me, guys. This is important. This is what Paul said. He, he was teaching the Romans basic Christianity 101. And he was teaching the Romans this. He said, the, the, the Old Testament law has a purpose. The law is not flawed, but the law's goal is to expose us. The law doesn't perfect us. The only way the law can save us is if we keep it perfectly and nobody does. So we need the gospel. But when he gave the example of what the law does, he said, there was covetousness in my heart. But I would have never seen covetousness, never, if the spirit by the law had not pointed it out to me. You know what he was saying? He was saying there is some brokenness in us that is so deep and so hidden that it never comes to light. We never see it. We call it financial responsibility. We call it stewardship. But there's something hidden that Paul says, unless the Holy Spirit points it out in you, you'll never grasp it. And it's the idea of covetousness. You think it's this, but it's, gimme, 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 gimme. I did find one study on the Ten Commandments and there wasn't enough material to even work on a sermon outline. It was written by a Catholic priest. I forget the name of the study, it was beautiful. He said, in, he was a retired Catholic priest, and he said, in decades of hearing confession, thousands upon thousands of confessions, he said, I have heard everything from murder to abortion to rape to child abuse. He said, I've heard all of that committed over and over and over and over. He said, but in decades, I have never heard one person say I'm covetous. Never has one person said I'm covetous. So the devil wants our innate covetousness to stay hidden. And the Lord says, I've got the cure, but we don't realize how much is about it in the Bible. The cure is contentment. The cure is contentment. Contentment or covetousness says, 
Justin, this is mine and you can't have it. Contentment says, even if Justin comes and steals it out of my hand, I say, that's all right. I don't need it anyway. And we don't live that way instinctively. There's a journey toward commitment that all of us need to take. I told you about Paul's testimony. I had planned to tell you my story and encourage you to do yours. It, it, obviously, we don't have time. I, I, it, so I'm just going to have to save it for another time. But I will tell you this. You, you did know, you have heard me talk about going to the James Robinson uh, Bible conference. That's where God set me free and and just unlocked all of that that was bottled up, my frustrations, my, my anger, my hostility, my, my lust, all of that. God just, it's like he just set me free in a moment's time. We don't always get deliverance like that. Sometimes God makes wine the old-fashioned way where he stomps the grapes and it takes time. That's, what, that's, that's where most of my wine comes from. But every once in a while, he'll do wine where he turns water to wine. That's what God did for me that night. But I want to tell you that I went back the next day ready for more freedom talk. And Dudley Hall started talking about the love of money. And I said, I, I don't want to talk about the love of money. I want freedom. I'm free. Talk to me about walking in freedom. And this is what Dudley Hall said. And Dudley's been here, I think, once. He came and preached for us a couple of times. But um, Dudley said, many of you were set free last night by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he said, you don't understand that there are still things in your life that you need to be free from. And he said, some of you last night received a miraculous deliverance and it's gone. But what you're going to find out before this week is over is that there are still strongholds. And you are set free now to battle those strongholds, but you've got to fight them. He said, some of you have a stronghold you don't understand about money and you don't understand about covetousness. You don't know how to be content. And boy, did he nail me. I, I, I mean, it's hard to grow up in 20th century America and not get infected with covetousness and the wanting of more. And he listened and I struggled and he listened and I struggled. I tell you what, he was so good. He waited on the platform. I went and talked to him afterwards along with other people. I waited my turn and he prayed for me, spoke prophetically into my life things that he had no way of knowing. But this is what he said to end his sermon. He said this, he said, some of you, he said, you're set free last night and you think you're home free, but some of you are absolutely plagued by this idea of money uh, of, of security. And, and we were in a very difficult place. It wasn't that I was wanting to pile money on. I just wanted to know I didn't have money problems. But, but can I tell you this? Um, greed is not just in the heart of rich people. Greed can be in the heart of poor people. A rich person will do anything they have to do to keep their money. A poor person will do anything they have to do to get the money. But it's both greed. It's both covetousness. And he said, this is what I'm going to tell you. God is saying that he will help you begin to walk through this process of turning covetousness into contentment. But he loves you so much. Boy, this was great. He said, I love you. He, that God says, I love you so much that if you don't pursue it yourself, 
He will allow one crisis after another to continue to touch your life until you cry out to Him for deliverance just like you cried out to Him for deliverance last night. He said it'll be like the book of Judges where you go through that cycle. You think you're doing great, you compromise, you're in sin, and, you, and God makes your circumstances so bad that you begin to cry out again. Loved ones, I know there's a time for benevolence. There's a time to get another job. There's a time for promotion. I know all of that stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about does this thing have you? Does your money have a grip on you? There's a, one of my favorite books is uh, Lord of the Rings. And, and I, I want to draw something out of Lord of the Rings. Now, you see the, the, the Christian life lessons. We basically cover this. Commitment is a starting place for joy. It's possible to be generally content, but not content in some regard. Um, like Hannah. Hannah was loved by her husband. She was her husband's favorite wife. She received special financial blessing from her husband, but she didn't have a child. She was fulfilled in every area of life except she was childless. Her husband tried to help her. Now, not everybody tried to help her. Her husband's other wife had children. In fact, she was like a brood sow. She was having kids every year, you know. And she would taunt Hannah for not having any children. And Hannah's husband tried to help her. He said, honey, don't you know I'm better to you than 10 sons? Well, that, he meant it. He said, I love you so much. I'll treat you so well that if you never have a son, you, you'll be happy and you'll be content. But how many of you know that when you are hurting, even the most well-meaning people among you make you mad? That's the, that's the problem uh, past, uh, not pastors, uh, parents have when their kids are growing into adulthood. They know you're right. And the only thing that makes them more angry than their problem is that you are right. And she, nothing that was offered to her was helping her, but she, she turned her heart to the Lord. She, she put her, her discontentment out to the Lord. That's, that's the way to do it. So you can be generally content, but still have areas of contention. What if I'm not satisfied? Examine your heart. Be sure that this is not a heart issue. Examine your personality. Some folks are just more easily adaptable to tough situations than others. Find out what kind of personality you've got and, and take a personality test and let that personality test tell you this is the best way for you to deal with difficulties. Or if there's somebody you trust that you love and loves you enough that they'll take the risk, let them tell you. Examine your view of God. We loved ones and, and settle the issue. Trust the depth of his love. If we're going to begin to walk into contentment, we've got to settle the issue once and for all. God is king of my life. I trust him. There's nothing I can do to, to make him love me more. There's nothing I will do that will make him love me less. I can trust him. He's not the janitor in the basement that you call up in times of crisis. He is the Lord of your life. And it may be, it may be that the Lord lets us go through these difficulties. That's how it was with me. He lets you go through these difficulties long enough until you call out on your face and say, Lord, I'm not just wanting you to fix this. I'm wanting you to fix me. 
and I'm going to stay before you till this is taken care of. Now, after that, you pursue the Lord. Let me tell you about Lord of the Rings, which is a great true story. And uh, if you know the story, I won't ruin the story for you, but uh, the goal is to get the ring back to Mount Doom because it's a very evil ring. And, it's, and, and the Lord of the ring, uh, 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 Sauron, wants to control the ring and he can control all of Middle Earth. So they've got to get the ring from the Shire, which is where the hobbits live, to Mount Doom, which is where the ring was forged and it has to be destroyed. Well, we've got a problem. We've got people like Boromir and Sauron that say, I can control the ring, give it to me and I will wield it with power. But the ring turns whoever owns it evil. So they can't control the ring. So you think, well, Gandalf, Gandalf the wizard, he's wise and mighty and he is, boy, he's, he, he's, he's something else. I mean, I named my bird Gandalf. He's really, he's really something. But Gandalf is so aware of the potential evil of the ring, he won't even touch it. He's, he comes near him and he says, someone tries to hand it to him, he says, do not tempt me, do not tempt me. So you got somebody that wants to grab the ring and use it, but they, they can't. You've got someone else that might could handle it, but is afraid to use it. So, you know, he just kind of takes a, a vow of poverty. No, I'll never touch the ring. And there's one fella in the story uh, and again, I won't ruin it for you. He's only in the book. He's not even in the movie, but he's a very pivotal character in the book. His name's Tom Bombadil. He um, um, changed his name from Chitty to Bombadil because he thought Chitty was strange. And Tom Bombadil comes in contact with the ring and everybody's afraid to touch it. You never put the ring on. It makes you invisible, but it also alerts Sauron to the presence of the ring. But Tom Bombadil plays with the ring. He throws around, he puts it on, he laughs, he treats it like a toy and everybody around him is freaking out and he just hands it back to the hobbits. He doesn't want the ring. And when they're trying to figure out who takes the ring, listen, they say, how about Tom Bombadil? Because it's obvious he has power over the ring. And this is what one of the wise men say. They say, no, he doesn't have power over the ring. Tom Bombadil is great, not because he has power over the ring. Tom Bombadil is great because the ring has no power over him. That's huge. That's huge. And that's, that's where I believe God is trying to get us to move as a church. That's where I believe God is trying us to get to move as families and as individuals. This slippery thing of money and stuff. As we go into difficult times, as we talked about in our long emergency update, and we'll continue in, in parts two and three, we have got to be able to have hearts that are cleansed to the point that whatever God wants to move through our hands, he knows that we will pass on. See, we, we've got to have, we've got to be free from the love of money. And loved ones, some people think, well, I'm a good businessman. I can control the money. No, you can't. You'll screw it up. You'll send the church down a cursed road. 
nothing that God wants to do will be done because we think we can control a spiritual thing like money. But because you're good with money, you think I got it. No, you don't. Or there'll be others like uh, Gandalf that are so afraid of the conflicting power of money. They'll say, oh, no, just keep it away from me. Just if I don't have it, it can't touch me. But God is looking for people not that have control over the money. It's deceptive. It's deceptive. But he's looking for somebody not who controls money, but he's looking for somebody over whom money has no control. See, that's the people, that's the churches, that's the lives he's going to use. I believe we're going to see difficult days ahead. And I want to tell you, you say, well, I'm just going to store up. I'm going to do this. I, I believe in that. I think you ought to do that. But you need to understand that one fire can destroy all your preparation. Amen. One thief can undo all your preparation. No, we have got to be vessels through which God may, you work, may work and go. Now, okay, we're out of time. So we need, to, we need to be through because people think they get out a lot earlier if we let them go before 12. So we're going to let you go, but I'm going to ask our ministry team to, to move into position and they are here. If you want to give your life to Jesus or you have a special need, you know, you're sick or you're, you're facing surgery or you have a, you, you know, I need you to pray for me for this. They're here to pray for you for that. This is what, and, and if you're listening online, if you need prayer, the number will come on the screen. Uh, if this is your first time with us, the screen will show our phone number where someone is waiting to talk with you and they'll be glad to talk with you about your, your relationship with the Lord or special needs that you have. And we're thankful. I think, I, I think every week people are calling in and we have an opportunity to pray for them. Um, but this is what I'd like everybody else to do. I, I am going to ask you, I'm going to ask you to take an inventory it may not be an inventory that you can even complete here. But I want you to do what Adrian Rogers suggested. He said, you want to know how rich you are? Uh, he said, take away everything out of your life that money can't buy and death can't take away. Take away all of that and what's left is true riches. I, I want you to say, Lord, in the days ahead, I know there will be frightening times. I know there will be difficult times. But Lord, I want to come to that place where I trust you. And not just to do this or that, but I really want to trust you with every affair of my life, with my children, with my past, my present, my, my future. I want to trust you. And I'm asking you to give me contentment. Now again, that doesn't mean we don't do things to better our lives. If you wanna to go to college and get a degree so you can make more money, there's nothing wrong with that. If you wanna to go to trade school and learn a skill so you can make even more money, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with buying a bigger house, nothing wrong with taking a better job. We, we, we've exhausted that today. That is not the problem. The problem is that we must not let things have a grip on us. We must not.